Well, we've been working through this latter, and uh, if you haven't been here down through these past few weeks, uh, it was going to be a fairly short series. This is actually number 25, uh, so that's not actually anywhere near as short as it was planned to be. And um, we've got a good roundup uh, of the whole of the book next week, but we're considering this letter uh, that the Apostle Paul wrote, uh, this historical figure, Paul, who was... um, persuaded against the message of Jesus, absolutely determined that he would not follow uh, the message of Jesus uh, to the the point where he actually took people's lives, we know of at least one life that he took, Uh, and then later on through dramatic events he was persuaded to follow the message of Jesus. And he, he travels around and um, uh, throughout uh, Asia Minor and uh, parts of Europe uh, spreading uh, the message of the Bible and uh, he establishes a church in one of the great uh, cities in what is now uh, part of Greece, Macedonia. Uh, he establishes a church in a city called Philippi which is one of the great Roman cities and uh, following on from that he's now moved on. He writes a letter to the church that he had previously established and we've been working through that. We're right now at the very end of the, of the book. And uh, we read in these last three verses, um, <clears throat> get those up on the screen, and we read this, the final greetings. Uh, the, Paul writes his letters, <coughs> if you like, in uh, following the, the tradition of the day. There's a, an opening salutation and there's a closing greeting. That's, if you like, the way the, the books were, but letters were written. Uh, in, in the day and uh, we read now the final greetings but the final greeting is perhaps not like uh, the kind of greeting that you would have got in a normal letter this is a surprising final greeting where he says greet every saint in Christ Jesus the brothers who are with me greet you all the saints greet you especially those of Caesar's household the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to be with your spirit and you think well that's uh, that's you know, so what? That's just a closing greeting. I think this has got a great deal to say to us today because it, it comes on the back of Paul thanking the church at Philippi for the support that they've been giving him for him to do the work that he has been doing down through these past months and years. They've been financially supporting him for him to be able to travel around. And uh, we saw last week how they've, they've found out, probably, where he is now. He's actually in a Roman jail. And uh, they are now providing him with financial support so that he continue uh, to be protected and kept, uh, not knowing whether he is going to actually live the next day. He is released from this imprisonment. Uh, it's a second imprisonment where Paul is finally, uh, where his, fi- his life is finally taken, not this one. But he writes to them from a Roman prison. And he's he's thanking them for the work that he's been doing, uh, which is travelling around, spreading the message of this character from history, Jesus of Nazareth, who he is uh, uh, arguing and uh, explaining and convinced that he is none other than the Son of God. And that is the historical claim of the church but I think it raises all sorts of issues which are as much an issue for us today what about this idea 
of going around and spreading a message throughout the world. The missionary issue has been um, a big problem, hasn't it, for many people? Uh, maybe it is for you. Uh, when, you th- when we use the word missionary, what do you think? <laughs> uh, is it the, the sort of um, David Livingstone kind of character who uh, that very sort of English colonial travel out to all of the uh, third world parts uh, uh, of this world in which we live and, and impose uh, this new way of living, including this Christian faith. That might be one way of looking at it. Certainly within probably around about five, six, no, 700 years, 700 years after this letter was written, we would have been facing a similar kind of imposition where the Christian faith had now been adopted by the Roman Empire and, if you like, it was now being imposed on wherever the Roman Empire spread to. That's a big challenge, isn't it? What about this issue of indoctrination? What about this issue of culturally taking over uh, different worldviews? Is it right that we should even think about the idea of mission, because that is precisely what is on the back of Paul's uh, greeting, our final greeting here. It's on the back of thanking them for helping him to be a missionary. Do we look at that and do we say, uh, all of that spreading this message, all of that mission stuff, it's gone, it's finished. You know, that, that's, that's old stuff. It's irrelevant to today, or even worse, it is unacceptable for today. I want to open by saying something which you might find surprising. I agree with you if you say the church, down through the centuries, has done a whole load of stuff that is really bad. I agree with you. I think many of the things that have been done in the name of Christianity, in the name of faith, in the name of the church, and in the name of spreading the message of Jesus, is horrific, terrible, and awful. Things that should not have happened. If you say that about what the church has done down through the years, I would say, I agree with you. But this final greeting raises all sorts of responses to that. It raises uh, a different perspective. And hopefully as we work through it very quickly, hopefully it will answer some of those issues. I think, well, we are going to look at it under three headings. What are real saints? What is real mission? And what are real lives? Because what we see here is, Paul, on the back end of, of this thanks for helping me in mission. He then says, and um, I I want you to greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Uh, And that might sound, as we we read that, we say, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. And the brothers and that brothers, again, just a reminder, uh, that is an English word translated from a Greek word. The Greek word was one word, which meant brothers and sisters. And because it's one word, it's translated brothers, but it meant the brothers and sisters who with me greet you. That sounds, doesn't it, 
Like Paul is saying, um, there's, there's a difference, there's a separation. Uh, there are saints and people who aren't saints. You know, are, are you in? Or are you outside? Are you part of this uh, and, and therefore you're a saint? Or are you separated out? And that, it's straight away, you think, don't really think I like that. Don't like the sound of that. Don't like the sound that the Christian faith says there are some people who are the good people and some people who are the not good people. You know, there are those who are the saints and there are those who are not the saints. He's supposed creating this hierarchy, saying we're the good people. Now if he was saying that, that gives a whole load of fuel, doesn't it? To the idea that the church down through the years has considered itself to be superior. The reality is that Paul is saying, I am basing the whole of my message on the message of Jesus. What does Jesus say about what it is to be a saint? So let's ask the question from the Bible's point of view, what is a real saint? Jesus says this to a whole load of religious leaders. They're the religious elite of the day. They are, if you like, the custodians of truth, the people who are considered to be the supreme. Jesus turns around to the scribes and the Pharisees when they saw that he was eating with sinners, and the, words that, the word that's used there in the Greek, sinners, and tax collectors, means that Jesus was meeting with the disreputable people in the world. Primarily, the, the meaning of that word sinners was prostitutes. And here's Jesus who was uh, meeting, sitting down and eating with prostitutes and tax collectors. Tax collectors in the day, collecting taxes on behalf of the Roman government. Con men, basically, the vast majority of tax collectors. They could charge whatever tax they wanted as long as they took what the Roman amount, uh, authorities required and sent that away. They could charge what they wanted. They could cream off what they wanted. And so to be a tax collector was an incredibly lucrative business to be in, but it was just a shocking awful, horrible, disreputable business to be in as well. And if you think about it, Jesus, who was claiming to be a religious leader, claiming to bring a, a moral authority into this world, he goes down and he, he meets with, sits down and eats with prostitutes and gangsters. No wonder the religious elite look at that and think, mm -mm, don't like that. Don't feel comfortable the idea that this uh, religious person, this one who is claiming to teach the word of God, the message of God, is going and meeting with people like that. It shouldn't happen. It's not the way it should be. It doesn't fit in with our view of how uh, Jesus should be. And so the Pharisees and scribes saw that Jesus was eating with tax collectors and they said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why is he doing that? That is just wrong. Now, the, the implications of that we, we don't get in our 21st century reading. 
the implications were if, if, if we were first century Jewish group of people together and I said to you after this meeting let's go, and, let's go and eat downstairs let's go and grab a meal in Bella Italia together what would that actually mean? It would mean if I ate with you, I was considering you to be a close friend. I was considering that we are friends together. You did not eat with people who were not considered your friends. And here's Jesus eating, sat down and eating with prostitutes and with gangsters, basically. The implications for the, for the religious leaders asking Jesus' disciples, why does he do that, is this, quite simply. If he really was a religious leader, if he really was somebody who would to listen to, he would know what they are like and he would know that he ought not to do it. Jesus' response blows them away. He says this, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. In other words, who wants a doctor? Sick people. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, Jesus is saying, and actually it was biting sarcasm. He says to these religious leaders, you think that you are so right... You think, think that you are so on the ball, you think that you are so above everybody else, but the reality is, the people who I have come to reach, the people who I have come to engage with, are the people who know they are sick. Spiritually sick. People who know that they are wrong before God. People who know that they are broken and shattered. I haven't come for people who think they're good. I've come for people who know they're bad. That's the deep down message. Now what we read is that Paul builds on that. And he writes later in Ephesians chapter 2 and 8 and 9, he says this, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Yes, it's faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. In other words, he's saying, I'm reinforcing everything that Jesus said. Being a follower of Jesus is not about what you do. It's not about being good. It's not about reaching a standard which makes you acceptable. It is actually recognizing how bad we are. Who are the true saints? Who are the true saints, according to this? According to the whole sweep of the New Testament. Who are the saints? The ones who know that they're bad. The ones that know that we need a physician. The ones that know that we need a saviour. That's exactly what Jesus was saying to the religious elite. I've had many conversations with people who've, who've I guess, you know, because of the job that I do, people think that, you know, good <laughs> or you you know religious or, or special or holy or whatever you want to call it I, I would say this the more you know about Jesus the more you know of the reality of God the more we realize actually how 
wrong and how unworthy we truly are. It doesn't make us feel better when we truly are knowing Jesus. It doesn't make us feel superior. In fact, feeling superior, feeling as though I am, I am, so, much more, I am so much better than those other people who do bad stuff, A sense of superiority is one of the challenges that I would say you need to stop and think, do you know the gospel of Jesus? Do you know that the gospel of Jesus doesn't say, I am now here to feel superior? It's here to say, I know I am not even close to being good. I need a saviour. So what are saints? Because Paul is saying, greet all the saints. He's saying, greet all of those who know that they can't possibly be any good, but they look to Jesus, who is good. It's, it's a hot topic issue. 1st of May, uh, John Paul II uh, was beatified in, um, in Rome by the current Pope. That's the first step to being considered a saint, to being classed as a saint, What do we read here? Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. What's a saint? In fact, let's take a step and say, what what does it mean to be a saint according to this kind of four, four steps that you have to do to be a saint, apparently? You have to, um, you have to be a candidate who has lived heroic values. In other words, you have to have lived a really good life. You have to have performed two miracles. And you have to have been accredited as being worthy to be called a saint. What it actually says here is real saints are just real messed up people. People who know that they're broken. People who know that they're shattered. That's everybody who knows Jesus Christ and says, he is my saviour. Because Paul says, greet every saint. It's not about what we've done. It's about what he has done. What a remarkable difference. That is what real saints are. Now, if we consider what real saints are, that will make a remarkable difference to the way we think what real mission is. So if that's what a real saint is, not somebody who claims to be good, but somebody who claims actually to be just humbly broken, shattered, and needing a saviour, doesn't that change dramatically the way we should uh, consider mission? What has mission resulted in down through the years? I would say that in the past 2,000 years, particularly for this country, Mission has resulted in the idea of a powerful church which imposes its authority on society. I would say that that is the idea, that that we've just got to that point. What is real mission? Real mission is about just ordinary people going out and living real lives In the real world, with a real commitment to living for Jesus. That changed the world. In fact, what we see here 
In this uh, next verse, verse 22, we read this. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. We've mentioned it before. This is a remarkable verse. The, ch- the Christian faith, a few years earlier, was not even understood. It just wasn't even considered. Jesus, 40 odd years earlier, been born. Just some decade or so earlier, he'd been nailed to a cross and he died. And the Christian faith is now beginning to spread through the world. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, we read this. Jesus said to his disciples before he returned to heaven, he said this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses and in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That's what he said. You will be my witnesses, Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. It's like ever increasing circles. That's what Jesus said to his disciples. That is what you are going to do. You are going to be men on a mission. And you're going to take the message to the end of the earth. That's the first chapter of the book of Acts. The last chapter of the book of Acts is where Paul is speaking before Caesar or in Caesar's court. Where he is now, he's saying, do you know what? The message of Jesus has reached Rome. (laughs) Now that is incredible. And more than the fact that it's reached Rome, it's reached into Caesar's uh, own palace. There's people who are part of the royal court who now believe in Jesus. Now for them, at that point in time, that was not an easy thing. It was not a light thing. You know, I just believe in Jesus. Actually, there was a man, uh, his name was uh, Flavius Clement, and he was the brother of the Roman Emperor Vespasian, the brother of Vespasian. Uh, He was the, therefore, he was the uncle of the emperors Titus and Domitian. Flavius Clement heard the message of Jesus and he believed it. He became rooted down deep into his life, so much so that he stood for it along with his wife. He was the brother of the emperor. In AD 95, just some 30 years after this, uh, he was executed by his nephew Domitian because he was a Christian. There's a picture there of the impact firstly, of what it meant to be a Christian. To be a Christian in the first three or four centuries into the fifth century was a big deal. You were likely to lose your life for it. In fact, in many parts of the world, even today, you were likely to lose your life for being a Christian. And I I would say I know that equally the church has just as often been shocking in its treatment of other people. I know that. But I would say that what we see here is just ordinary people willing to lay down their life and say, I will die for the sake of what I believe. I will die for it. Take everything. Take everything that I possess. Take my family, take my goods, take my life. 
That is people on a mission. That is brokenness. That is humility. That is the kind of people who, right at the very beginning of the Roman Empire, who were living remarkably different lives, they said, they basically said this, we will not seek to impose, we will not seek to impose our law on the whole of society. What we call for is that we are given the freedom to live our lives according to God's word. That's what they were asking for. We want to be able to live according to the demands that Jesus makes on us. And we don't demand that you live the same as us. That is so different, isn't it, I think, than much of what we hear of Christian demands being made by many people today. We want to live as Christians how we believe we ought to, but we do not expect to impose that on other people. What did it result in? It resulted in the reversal of a Roman tradition which was basically the abandonment of unwanted babies. In the Roman Empire, primarily you would want sons, so the vast majority of daughters, after a certain point, would be just abandoned, literally thrown down the drain, literally thrown down the drain as, as tiny babies. It was the Christian population who first started orphanages, who first started rescuing these babies and living differently, and people just looked on and saw the way that people lived and thought, that's just different. No, it, why? Because people were not considered to be truly human at the point of birth. They were considered to be truly human at some point later. And therefore it was perfectly acceptable to get rid of newborn babies because they're not really human. And the Christian perspective came in and said, look, we, just, we, just, we don't see that. We see that human life is something special, something to be protected. That's what we believe. And we're not imposing that you need to live like that. But what we will do is when we see children who are thrown literally into the, into the drains, we will rescue them. And we will feed them. And we will protect them. And we will see them grow. What a remarkable change that brought into society. People who are just living different lives. And I would say, that possibly more than for many centuries, I would even say as far as centuries, that is what we are called to do today. To live lives which are different. To live lives which are not making staggering, imp imposing demands on other people, but are saying just live differently. Live lives which are, as groups of people, living for Jesus, living in a way which is consistent with him, living in a way which changes the world and in a way which is seen to be different, one which does not make imposing demands. Many people have asked me, what, what kind of church are you? <laughs> so, um, well, uh, that's, a t that's a bit of a tough question. The best one I've come up with is we're an indie church. I thought that's kind of, you know, that kind of fits, we're indie. What does it mean? It just means we're an independent group of people who believe in Jesus, we're a church together, we share the Bible, uh, and that is not threatening, 
It's not making demands. It's just living differently. And it's saying this is where we are. We want to share it. We want to share this message of Jesus. We want to live as best we can in a way which shows that we know that we are not the best. We are actually as bad as anybody else. We are the worst. But because we know what we are like as saints, we know that we're not going to come in and just make imposing demands. We're going to be on a mission which is different. And that is what changed the world. The final thing I want to say is this. How do we do that? What are real lives? Verse 23. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. What empowers us to do that? When you look on and you say, I'm not sure whether I'm totally in with this Christian thing. I'm not sure I accept it all, but that there's something going on which just makes me think. What is it? Let me tell you, if you think it's the people, you will be disappointed. We will at some point let you down because we are ordinary people, broken, messed up, uh, and we will let people down and we will do things which are wrong and we will just screw up. So what is the difference? It's this. It is the grace of God living in us. That is the difference. That is what it is to be a saint. That is what empowers us to be on a mission which is living starkly different. That is what causes maybe you this afternoon to be thinking, there is something which makes me think. What is it? It is the grace of Jesus Christ. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ dwelling within. The personal relationship with the living God which said that because I know him, I am changed. I have a confidence for the future. I look forward to a real connection which will be established when he returns and I live in the light of that. This is not what it's all about. This is not the end. This is not everything. There is more to come, and and we've said it on a past few occasions, the day of Christ, which Paul repeats on three occasions through this letter, he says, live in the light of that day. Now I would say that living in the light of that day gives us the opportunity to understand, firstly, that real saints are not people who think that they're superior, they're people who know that they are inferior because we're inferior to Christ that mission is not about some kind of indoctrination it's about living lives which reflect Jesus and that that is empowered not by our strength but real lives real living is empowered by the presence of God I hope that what we've looked at this afternoon has challenged that particular issue of mission and being on a mission and Christians considering themselves to be superior and all of that kind of stuff. So what are we? Well, people who know that Jesus, by his sacrifice has caused us to be in relationship with God that we do not deserve. 
he has given us what we do not deserve. That is grace. Verse 23. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ living within us by empowering our spirits to have hope in him. 